This is Sam. This is Paul. And this is Southpaw. So today we're joined by Mary Stevens. Hi, Mary. Hi, how are you doing? Can you introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. Um, my name is Mary Stevens. I run a martial arts school here in the UK as part of Oxford School of Martial Arts. Uh, I write stuff and I um, head up a charity um, project in India um, as part of Fair Fight, which is an organization to teach martial arts to vulnerable girls. So it's part of a larger non-government group? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So my, my section of it is just the India part. Um, and I've only recently taken on um, organization of that. Um, it was founded by, in the Netherlands um, by a fantastic group of people. Um, and we also have a project in Zimbabwe. So what is Fair Fight about? Um, well, Fair Fight is about um, connecting local martial arts organizations with groups of vulnerable girls in developing countries. So um, because we believe that teaching martial arts to vulnerable women will help them become more powerful and more successful in their lives. So um, in India, we work with a group of girls who have been rescued from poverty, from prostitution, uh, or from whose um, maybe their, their parents are in sex work um, and they've been living on the streets, or maybe their parents can't even afford to educate them. So they really don't have any choices. And we work with the organization that houses them um, to teach them karate. What's the typical life like for one of the vulnerable girls that you're working with in India? Um, well, I think to, to kind of paint a picture, you need to imagine that in Varanasi, where we work, there are maybe 80 million tourists every year. Um, and they're mostly Indian pilgrims because it's a very holy city. Um, and most of these come through the railway station. And the railway station is um, kind of the center for sex trafficking. So um, there's a lot of um, corruption in the police. And you find that um, a lot of these tourists are coming through and they're using their pilgrimage as a cover up for uh, kind of sex holidays. And very young girls are kind of working the sex trade there because they don't have any other option. And so you kind of you visualize kind of disused railway carriages and um, pimps and um, the girls that we work with have come from um, some of them come from there or their parents have, have come from there. They've been abandoned or they're homeless and picked up at the railway station or came for medical attention if they needed it, because obviously these girls are quite badly abused. And so from there, they may be taken into a safe house and um, kind of um, given uh, security and education and, you know, uh, a safe place to be. It sounds like it's systemic. It's absolutely systemic and it's a, it's a huge problem. And also not all of the um, women who are working in that situation are ready to take on help. Um, so you get you know, I don't know, there's a significant um, number of women in sex work who are, it's just their way of life um, and they don't really see any other options. But then you also get young girls that have been um, kind of systematically bullied into it from, you know, some of the kids we're talking about are as young as six and seven years old. Um, and, you know, they don't really know that they have other choices. Um, they just know what they know particularly some of our little ones, um, seven, eight years old, even where they are in their, in their safe house with, um, you know, teachers and regular food and care, a roof over their heads. They miss their mums. They wish they were with their mums. And, you, you know, they're, they're just kids, really, at the end of the day. Um, so it's only a tiny fraction of the kids that are kind of being sex trafficked, um, that do get uh, other opportunities, I guess. 
What's the name of the wing that's in India that you're directly working with? We know the umbrella is Fair Fight. Yeah. So Fair Fight works with um, an organization, which is an NGO in India called um, Ashadia, which is Light and Hope Foundation. Um, and they're connected to a, a body in France called Act and Help. Um, because NGOs, they have to be Indian NGOs to work inside of India. Um, you can't have foreign NGOs working there. So um, I met with the founder of Ashadia um, quite recently, and she was explaining how she came to try and give medical support to um, young prostitutes and was kind of alarmed to discover quite how young they were um, and girls that were coming back for repeated um you know, they were trying to give a no questions asked support um, for women working in the railway station. Um, but she noticed how young they were and she decided she needed to try and do something about it. So how did you initially get involved with Fair Fight? Were you introduced through a mutual friend? Is it something that you sought out? It is um, kind of very straightforward, really. I um, um, My uh, karate association here in the UK is called Jindakai and um they are um, a global martial arts organization. And um, the founder of Fair Fight was originally um, involved in Jindakai um, when she trained in the UK before she moved back to the Netherlands. Um, and so when Fair Fight needed more um, karate instructors to support the work in India, um, a, an email came out to all of us in the group saying, is there anybody here who can help with this project? And so I kind of opened up the email and saw... Uh, they needed uh, a martial arts instructor to go and help but support the development of the teaching side of it because uh, we have martial artists on the ground um, but th they needed uh, a little bit more help um, in terms of how they were teaching the girls and what they were teaching them um, and it seemed like it was the right thing for me to do that it was something that I should volunteer for. So you're bringing over a curriculum that you guys have already been using in the UK? Um, kind of, it's not really so much a curriculum. Um, so Fair Fight Works is a connector. We're very much into, um, you know, we're, we're very kind of opposed to the whole concept of flying in as the white saviors and, um, bringing, imposing our cultural beliefs on a local society. What we see in Varanasi is there's a huge movement amongst young Indians to try and generate more equality. And the karate association that we're working with really believe that uh, more equality for men and women will bring a better India. And that's what they want to work towards. Um, but where maybe they struggle is that with a very traditional teaching of martial arts, they don't necessarily have that direct connection to life skills that, that we really push here in the UK and I think in the States as well. So that you're trying to use martial arts as a tool to empower your students in such a way that's not just about, you know, neat kata or effective kumite. Um, it's about decent self-defense, but it's also about self-discipline, self-confidence, and um, all of that kind of progression towards applying martial arts holistically in your life. So that was kind of the angle we were going in with. Yeah, I, I want to ask you more about your program that you're teaching there, but there's something you said uh, about they don't want non-Indian NGOs. Why is that? Oh, it's it's illegal in India. Um, in India, it's it's very much that um, those who work inside of India need to be uh, Indian or um, kind of the organizations are generated from inside of India. And I think I'm, I'm not really sure. Um, I kind of don't push me on this because I'm not really sure what I'm talking about. But I'm, I'm, I'm aware that, uh, you know, with the history of uh, white involvement in India, uh, I think if I were Indian, I'd be pretty um, annoyed too if uh, like foreign organizations kept coming in and trying to tell me how to run my stuff. What age group are you guys working with? So the girls are aged, um, well, between six and 18. At 18, they're too old then for the safe house and they have to be moved on to the next program. Um, you know, obviously at that time, the house has only been running for um, it's probably been running for eight or nine years, I think. Um, and our oldest girls have just got to the point where they've been moved on. Um, and that's been really hard for them because it's all that they've known for the, and, and, you know, we're really talking about a safe house here. They go out to go to school, but other than that, they stay in the house and everything is brought to them. Um, so, um, it's really hard for them. So it's not a safe house that just houses them. It's also educating them and feeding them. And yeah, 
yeah, they they go to local schools um, under supervision, but they they stay inside the house. They have a guard, um, and like things like the karate comes to them twice a week. They have music lessons and dancing lessons and drawing lessons and cooking and sewing and all kind of life skills stuff. But um, all of those teachers come to them in the house. So other than the fundamentals of punching and kicking, what are some of the life skills that you guys are working with? Well, that's a, that's a good question. That's a huge, a huge, um, a huge subject area. Um, I think when it comes down to it, punching and kicking are really important parts of martial arts, but they're nowhere near as important as um, the kind of the the belief in yourself that you're uh, you're allowed to be independent, um, that you're that kind of concept of self actualization. So you have good self-control, so you achieve better grades at school because you're disciplined. Um, you connect well to other people because you can step up and be a leader, but you're also good at working in a team. Um, mentoring is built into the system, so you should always, you know, you learn to be a teacher as well as to be a student. Um, and moving on, then these kids should be good employees um, and they should be able to aspire. They shouldn't be held back by their difficult start in life. And are they all ready to go from the beginning or are a lot of them kind of wounded and you have to work their way into, I guess, human dignity? You would be amazed at quite how resilient these kids are. I mean, bear in mind that not all of them have come out of sex work. That's important to underline that some of them have just, you know, they've had huge disadvantages in other ways. Um, but but yeah, honestly, um, I mean, I, I teach some children here in the UK that have come from very difficult backgrounds. Um, and they struggle much more than my girls do in India. Um, and that may be that it's, you know, it's a different culture. It may be that these girls have found um, incredible support in each other because they are really supportive of each other. Imagine 22 girls living in one house together, 10 sharing a room, and they're, they're really nice to each other. You know, we bring new clothes over and instead of fighting over who gets the pink jeans and who gets this, then they're like, I think these would look nice on you or that would look great on you. Or, you know, they're, they're, <laughs> they're, really, they're really good together. Um, and so maybe they just feel lucky. I don't know. I think through movies and tourism, we have this idea of India and also just from hearing about it in business magazines and economic shows. It always shows India growing and developing and its GDP is catching up and it's, you know, along with China, it's always brought up as the next competitor to the US. So it's portrayed in a way where it's coming up and it's not that bad. But you've been there and you're working with these girls. Like what is typical life for the average Indian person? Is there a middle class or is it pretty much there's a few elite rich and then the rest are poor? There's an incredibly complex caste system, and it's very different in different parts of the country because obviously it's a huge country. Um, my experience, I have to say, is very limited. And um, in my amongst my Indian friends, they're just like, "Oh my God, you wanted to experience India? Why the hell did you go to Varanasi?" I'm like, "Well, I didn't choose Varanasi. Varanasi chose me." Um, and I'm aware that what I've seen there is only a snapshot, um, and it's not a great snapshot. Um, you're right, India is growing hugely and it's really good to see that the economy is doing well and that things are coming on. But I mean, we're talking about filthy, filthy environment, filthy streets. We're talking about absolute chaos. We're talking about zero health and safety. You know, we're talking about family of five on a motorbike and we're talking about animals in the streets. Uh, this is a place where, I'm sorry, but the streets are paved with shit. Um, and that's just no exaggeration. That is just how it is. Um, and you cannot, I mean, people can explain to you the bedlam, um, the, the chaos, the noise, the, um, you know, just the general vibe. And you still can't prepare yourself for the relentlessness of it when you get there. So, yeah, I mean, the part of India that I have seen is is not, I would say not necessarily the best of India, but at the same time, it's an incredibly spiritual place. You know, we're on the Ganges, the Holy River, which is filthy, but worshipped by um, all the people around. You know, we're looking at the, the crematoriums and the temples. It's, it's, a, it's a real city of contrasts. So once they graduate from your program, is there a lot of job prospects for them in that area or do most of the young people then have to move to the bigger cities? 
Well, we're still a very kind of baby project. Um, so we've got our two girls that have um, moved on and out of the house and they're still working on their higher education. Um, and so we haven't yet had anybody at that point where they can move into employment, uh, although obviously that is the plan that we support them into employment and independence. Um, and that's still very much in the future um, because most of the girls are, are, are too young for that to be a consideration at the moment. Um, in terms of employment, I mean, it, it's a it's a very it's a very busy city. I, I don't think they would be looking to be to be moving outside of the city because it's very it's kind of outside the city. You immediately hit some very rural areas um, where it's just little tiny villages and and farming. Some of our girls come from those villages outside of of the city, um, but inside the city itself, then you know, there's a lot of very standard. You know, it's shops and um, kind of manufacturing. There's a lot of um, cloth manufacturing and that kind of thing in and around the city. So, so some pretty um, some, some pretty basic stuff, I guess. But but I, I would imagine the, the job prospects are there. And IT is a big thing. If they, we try to give them um, computer literacy, is is really important, um, so that they have the potential to work in um, IT, which is a huge area in India. You mentioned that sex trafficking is rampant in this city, and it's a problem that especially affects girls, but does it also affect the boys as well? Because I know in countries like Nepal, it's unfortunately known for sex trafficking with young boys. Is that also the case? It's not something that I've come across. Um, uh, it's, I mean, the whole kind of area of homosexuality is much more taboo in India than it is um, obviously in in the UK. Um, and it's kind of um, it's not talked about um, with the people that I have spent time with there, and it does seem to be, you know, that the primary problem is is for women, but also kind of that goes deeper in society in that women are very disempowered generally. I mean, for, I've talked about um, how busy the streets are. When you're looking at the streets, you're looking for if you're looking for women drivers, if you're looking for women doing anything, kind of important. No, the women are in the background. The women are cooking and cleaning and still playing a supporting role. Even in the university, there's a very famous um, university in the city, uh, one of the oldest universities in India. And recently the female students rioted um, because they were so fed up with the being marginalized and abused and harassed. Kind of the level of um, harassment for women on the streets is um, kind of spectacularly bad in a way that you know, is is still kind of accepted as normal over there for for girls to be what's called Eve teased. Do they call it Eve teasing? Um, but it's it's overt sexual harassment, and men that that doesn't you know that isn't a problem for men in the same way. Certainly not in my experience. So the harassment is almost normalized. Completely, yeah. Along with um, teaching them life skills, and it sounds like the safe house is doing a lot for these uh, young girls and women. Is there also some kind of financial support given to them? Yeah, all the money from Act and that's exactly what the money from Act and Help goes to do. Um, so that these girls are not, you know, because they wouldn't keep them in the safe house for all of these years and then throw them back out on the streets with no and no opportunities. So that's they're now working on developing a program, a kind of graduate program, which supports them into employment. And yes, all of their financial um, expenses are being met for their education and, and accommodation. Um, and all of that is done through Act and Help. That's not something that Fair Fight does. We're, you know, we're a partner organization that we work for their karate training specifically. Fair Fight is also doing stuff in Zimbabwe. Yeah, that was the original part of the project. Um, and that's because one of Fair Fight's founders um, is from Zimbabwe um, and was working um, in a school there and became, you know, we, we've long believed that that martial arts is a fantastic way to help people help themselves. And that really tallies with this kind of um, modern trend in um, getting involved in to help people in developing countries to self-actualize, you know, not to be dependent on um, aid, not to be dependent on uh, having to adopt what we would consider as being uh, an appropriate path. But, um, you know, you teach these young women karate and hopefully you'll then find them in politics and in medicine and in the law. Um, because they will take up arms in all of those areas. In general, have you gotten support for these projects from the martial arts community? 
I cannot tell you how much support um, when, like in terms of just there are some martial artists that they hear about it and they go, yeah, okay, I can see how that would work. I want to get involved with that just the same way that I did. Um, and it seemed to me like the martial arts community is, you know, to be topical, it's like Christmas lights. There's a network all over the world. And as they hear about fair fight, they light up and say, yeah, okay, I get that. Um, uh, I, I want to help with that. Um, so the only limiting factor has been people hearing about what we do, um, as opposed to, you know, there's, I haven't come across any martial artists that have said, oh, no, that's not going to work. They've all been like, oh, wow, that's cool. Uh, I mean, we have martial artists from all different um, disciplines that are involved. You know, there's a lot of us from karate, but Tang Sudo have been huge in it and Aikido. And, you know, there's just a whole range of, of martial arts that have been wanting to get involved and support it. So then let's get into that. How did you get into the martial arts? Well, um, you know, I looked up at the fantastic silhouette of the kicking figure in the sports center when I was about eight years old, and it said karate. And I was like, wow. And my friend standing next to me looked at it and went, carrot, what's that? Because, <laughs> uh, you know, this was like back in the 70s. So it was just, you know, martial arts was, it was, it was, it was growing in the UK, but it was all kind of um, from the movies and stuff. And uh, I said to my mom, wow, I really want to do that. And she's like, no, that's for boys. And she sent me back to my ballet class. Uh, and uh, it was years later, I've always been fascinated by it and found martial arts kind of, you know, powerful and beautiful. But it was when my own son was getting bullied um, at four years old that I kind of really started to think seriously about martial arts because ballet was not going to cut it for him. And um, I found a club that he could train at and, and became involved myself. What do you think attracted you to the martial arts even at that young age where you were fascinated and curious about it? Well, I think it is that combination of power and beauty. Um, and certainly when you think about um, some of our most famous martial arts uh, kind of films or um, or figures uh, and you think about how it's great to see the human body doing such cool stuff um, and you know you feel like a badass and you it's nice to hit things and it's yeah it's it's good to to have patterns that you can go through that in itself is always been humans like routine and kind of physical repetition is always um a good part of that i think so there's i, I don't know there's so many different ways in, mentally physically uh, that it's uh, that it's appealing was there a reason you chose martial arts over let's say boxing well i have done some boxing in my time um and enjoyed it um, what do I like about uh, kind of, I've, I would say that my, my main martial art has been karate for a long time for, for some solid reasons. Um, my first degree was history. So I've always had an appreciation of tradition, even though I'm something of an anarchist in some ways. Uh, and so to look at, um, the aesthetics of karate in terms of its, um, its history and its katas, um, has always been, um, yeah, it, there's a whole dimension there which is important and within karate because we have you know fighting as well uh, you do get to explore some of those areas without it being as specifically um, hardcore as boxing where yeah you do obviously it's not all getting hit in the face and getting knocked out but there's there's a fair degree of that if you're going to take boxing seriously um, it's incredibly skillful um, but I think for me it would lack some of the breadth of karate I think we've talked about this before, just you and I off the show, but you just mentioned history and you've mentioned how important history and philosophy is to martial arts. And we've discussed what martial arts would look like if it didn't have those elements. Why do you think history and philosophy is such an important aspect uh, to martial arts? Um, so I would say that there's nothing wrong with, for example, kickboxing. Kickboxing is a great way to uh, to express yourself physically and for me, uh, my instructor always said that karate is like, it has kickboxing, but then it has like all of this other stuff as well. Um, and when I'm training my own students, I really believe that the discipline involved in kata, the, the precision of the techniques and the patience that you need to employ uh, for the 
other aspects of karate draw on that kind of history and philosophy and build stronger character. That's not to say you can't, you know, get a good strong character doing kickboxing. I just think that karate has a holistic education built inside it. And having worked inside of education itself, I would say that you're going to get a better rounded learner from a a martial arts system than you will from a school system or something that's kind of has fewer dimensions to it. So you just mentioned it. You used to be a school teacher in what in the U.S. we would call high school. You were teaching English? Um, Yeah, kind of in my second um, career in school teaching, I was teaching English. Originally, I was a history teacher and sort of had time out in between those two um, um, periods of my life when I was working in, in public schools. Do you think that experience with school education helped you as a teacher in martial arts? Uh, yes and no. I'd say more the reverse, that my experience in martial arts helped me as a teacher. But, I mean, in between, I was, so, for example, when I was first teaching history, I was just a teacher. You know, I had come from a background of I did my degree and I did my teacher training and I went into teach school. Uh, and then I took time out and I had my family and I got into karate training and I trained for many years before I went back into school teaching as an English teacher. And I was amazed at how um, how difficult it was for kids to learn in that system compared to how they could access learning as martial artists. Because when you teach your child um, a, a good solid background with the principles of martial arts, they can learn anything in any environment if they've learned their martial arts effectively. Um, and, you know, you've got a whole heap of kids that are, I know it's the same in the US that you're kind of subject to testing, testing, testing all the time. And there's so much emphasis on testing and not enough ten- emphasis on learning and creativity. So you're effectively getting them to shut down important parts of their brain um, and they just don't get to access them in the same way. They don't have the joy of learning that they really need. Um it makes me angry because, you know, I, I loved being a, a kid at school and uh, thrived on it. And now, you know, kids don't enjoy their education as they should do. So there's more testing now than in the past. Definitely. And teachers are, com- because schools are then uh, kind of ranked and judged on the testing, um, then even decent schools have no option but to teach to the test. So um, one of the major battles that I had um, as an English teacher was the closing down of the curriculum and you know getting kids to read just like British books, for example, um, you know a focus on Shakespeare and you know we lost of mice and men from the curriculum and that was a real killer because uh, you know we love to kill a mockingbird we love mice and men and we felt that these if you're dealing with kids that don't learn very well they can relate to Lenny they can relate to uh, the things that happen, and in Steinbeck writes in such a beautiful and poetic way um, that it's great language, but it's not too complicated. Um, and you know, I think it's right for teachers to be able to choose for their students or choose with their students works that are going to really connect with the student and get them to enjoy their learning, and kind of being made to come from a very prescribed, very British list. You know, talking about British literature, not English literature. Um, and, you know, that's that's not good. It's interesting to note that the same issue is also plaguing the U.S. educational system where the teachers have to cater more towards test taking and making sure their students can pass a rigid system of codes that they need to learn as opposed to holistically learning. Yes. And you also have to demonstrate what the students are learning. So instead of actually teaching them, you have to demonstrate what you're teaching them and show how they have assessed, they have peer assessed, you have assessed them. And so everything that they do has to be triple assessed. So you spend most of your time showing that path of assessment as opposed to actually you know, being able to freestyle with things. And I know that there are problems with freestyling and it's much more dependent on the ability of the teacher or the individual school and it's a very uncontrollable system that's why the government has a problem with it because even if education isn't good like this at least they can control it so that makes everybody feel safer was there a reason or a time when the educational model shifted yes um a couple of times in you know in recent years shortly before i first became a teacher there was an introduction of a national curriculum which we didn't have previously that was very controversial in history because 
obviously when you choose what people study for history you like massively shape their view of the past um, and there's a big emphasis on British history uh, which as a kind of an anti-imperial person um, I'm not that big a fan of um, and you know same same within English that once the government narrows the curriculum to say you know you're not going to have Steinbeck or you're not going to have any of these different things you have to study you have to study Shakespeare I mean seriously these are kids that can barely read and you're making them study Shakespeare Shakespeare is for you know an elite it's for and people do read Shakespeare for pleasure but they're very, you know, they're not, they're not very many people that read Shakespeare for pleasure. And just because he's very famous and did a lot of great stuff, it doesn't mean that people should be forced to to read him or write about him. They have grad degrees about Shakespeare for a reason, because it's really complicated. <laughs> exactly. And you try and teach that to somebody who struggles to write a sentence. You know, it's 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 challenging. And it's not. And, and when I took that to the government, I was told that I was being um, insufficiently aspirational for my students. I'm like, I am nowhere near being ins- insufficiently aspirational for my students. You just have to come and meet my students. It's not fair that, that you've wrecked the education system. Uh, they hate being in the classroom. They struggle to read. And you're saying that because, you know, they can't you know, understand Shakespeare and Dickens, it's it's now my fault. It's really not. Have you developed your own system of getting around such roadblocks? Uh, well, I kind of battled it for a long time and then went back to teaching martial arts and stepped out of the classroom again because, you know, I'm just one person against a much too big a movement. You know, we have, a, you know, a fair amount of uh, very politically aware teachers. We went on strike a bunch of times, but Basically, it's very difficult to get teachers to strike because they don't want to uh, sabotage the work that they're doing with kids and they, d- they don't feel that it's fair on the children. Uh, even if there is a bigger picture, they don't really feel that bigger picture. Um, and so kind of having knocked my head against that wall for quite a long time, I was really happy to go back into teaching martial arts where I feel that I'm really making a difference for the kids that I'm teaching. It sounds pretty parallel to what's been going on in the U.S. I think even the reforms that happened in the U.K. with education probably parallels the same stuff that was happening here with Common Core and No Kids Left Behind and and creating a national curriculum. Exactly the same, yeah. And then politically, education always has to go last on the priority. Well, maybe not last on the priority, but it can't be one of the top ones because, like you said, the teachers don't want to disrupt the kids' education, but then how do you ask for reform? Exactly. It's a, it's a really difficult situation. And I really feel for our American colleagues as well, because I know that they have exactly the same thing. And what you get then is lots of teachers that just shrug and go, do you know what? I'm killing myself here. You know, the hours are ridiculous. The stress is unbelievable. The pressure is relentless. I'm going to go do something else because uh, uh, you, they can't serve the kids that they're there for because they're just too exhausted and they, they've lost their inspiration because, you know, it, it's hard to get excited about teaching the same things, an inappropriate curriculum, and to, to get bogged down into grammatical structure. You know, your kids can't write stories anymore. You can't afford to have kids write stories because then you have to mark them and you have to mark them so intensely. And then you have to say, this is a great story, you know, but you didn't use a complex sentence, a compound sentence. Uh, your paragraphing is incorrect. Um, and you should have used more um, interesting adjectives here. You haven't got enough wow words um, to meet this criteria in the in the in the level scale. So at that point, you're just like, wow, you've just really taken all the fun out of it. It's almost like instilling writer's block at their most creative phase of learning. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's really depressing how um, kids have got very um, savvy with grammar now because they they know how to they know how to write in a way that passes exams, or the bright kids do, they know how to work that system. Um, but they're not used to, uh, you know, a, a kind of a, um, the creativity and the fun that they can have uh, out of writing in, in a freeform style. So yeah, it's a, it's not a great move. And, and we're going to see the consequences of it far too late to change it. Really, all education and all learning is all the same, in that when it's good, it looks similar. And when it's bad, it looks the same. So 
the current educational system in the Western countries like the UK and the US, what it sounds like to me is, and even from experience, it sounds like a bad martial arts school where they have a belt test, let's say every week. Mm. And then if you have a belt test that often, and it's all about testing to get your rank, then everybody's just going to practice and learn in a way that passes the test. And then overall, they become a worse martial artist, a worse person. They don't know how to defend themselves and they have a black belt. And that's kind of what it seems like. You get a degree, but you can barely read. Uh, you don't know how to think for yourself. The universities are experiencing this now as well, that kids are getting to university and they're expecting to be spoon fed because they've always been taught to the test before. Um, and that they're getting angry with their lecturers who expect them to be able to study independently. One of the things you mentioned before about teachers going on strike is that they're afraid of disrupting the learning. Yes. In the U.S., a major reason the teachers go on strike is also the financial cost of being a teacher, where they have to spend so much of their own money to furnish their classrooms, provide supplies, while their wages haven't gone up. Is a similar issue also occurring over there? Yeah, there was a wage freeze for a very long time. Um, and there was a lot of resentment because politicians' wages continue to go up and wages for nurses, teachers, doctors uh, all were frozen because we all had to pull together because the recession. Um, and it's this whole idea of you know, we're in it together, this is austerity. And uh, it, you know, it was it was not good. The other problem is that schools funding has been cut dramatically. So not only are teachers not paid enough, there, there aren't enough of them. And teachers are then teaching in non-subject areas. So you have, you know, maths teachers that have to teach English or science teachers that are stuck uh, teaching computing or, or, you know, trying to balance these things. And there's been a massive cutback in the arts curriculum. So again, the changes in education have meant that music and drama and dance have all been um, downgraded as subjects. Uh, so with a kind of pushback to focusing on core subjects like English, math and science, um, so that those are more privileged subject areas. So yeah, the whole thing is a fiasco really. Um, and yes, teachers do have to spend a lot of their own money if they want their kids to have a decent environment to learn in. Having watched some of your karate classes, one of the things that really struck me was you did a really good job of balancing different sizes, different ages, different skill levels, and different genders. What's your overall approach? Well, we split them down as much as we can. Um, so yeah, as you, I think you came and saw uh, a standard run through for us, which is the little ones starting at four right through to the big ones at, by kind of six, seven o'clock. And um, so for the, the little ones, it's a, it's a different focus, um, the kind of three to six-year-olds, there's a lot of you know, social cooperation, um, following instructions, uh, working together nicely. And martial arts is very much a kind of vehicle to, to, to make them feel um, like they're having fun, but that they are learning self-control. Um, so for a lot of four-year-olds, for example, they begin to have their first unsupervised play and that's when you know a lot of bullying starts. Kids learn that they can push each other over. They don't really know how to deal with that, or they take each other's stuff. And it's very exploratory at that age group. So we kind of hit those issues head on. Then as they get a little bit bigger, um, there's more of a focus on the things that they discover for independence. You know, we have kids that are then out in the streets on their own for the first time, even if it's just running down to the shop to get a pint of milk for their parents. Uh, or the older ones in that age bracket are going to school on their own on the bus, and I think I think you have a school buses a lot earlier, don't you, in the US? Um, the, over here, um, it tends to be kind of oldest sort of. I have eight nine year olds that go to school on the bus on their own, but um, not not so many from the kind of younger age group. And then there are issues that come around there. So, you know, self-defense is about making sure that you've charged your phone or that you have credit on it, uh, that you've told your parents what time you're going to be home and that you stick to it. Um, and then, you know, the bigger ones, again, heading up towards the really high grades, uh, they should be um, working hard in school and mentoring each other and getting a really good, strong physical workout and uh, pushing their martial arts skills um, towards their black belt and beyond. One of the things I noticed was a lot of the higher belt older students took an active role in teaching a lot of the younger students. 
is that part of the curriculum? Very much so. Yeah, it's, it's an important part for us. Um, I mean, it teaches empathy, which is really important. And But it's also about effective leadership skills um, because the kids that get black belt, um, hopefully they'll always identify as a martial artist and they'll always want to train, but they're not necessarily going to want to run their own club. Um, I mean, I have four students in the last couple of weeks who interviewed for Cambridge University. And that's a really high percentage, four students in the same club um, who happen to be the right age this year to be applying. Um, and we have some very smart kids who work really hard at school and get some really good grades. Um, and, you know, much as I'd like to think that these kids are going to find fulfillment in teaching martial arts, uh, kind of like I do, but um, it, realistically, they're, they're going to take those skills into other areas. Um, and I'd like them to be um, empathetic and really effective and patient and um, good at stepping up when they need to be. So all of those things are things that we teach them in the dojo. To become a black belt or to keep ranking is teaching an expectation? Uh, yes and no. Um, they have to understand the teaching concepts and to be able to articulate them. We won't, I mean, our black belt test um, requires you know, quite a, a wide degree of knowledge. They have to know um, first aid and nutrition and uh, the legal elements of self-defense, um, as well as kind of um, terminology and history of karate and so on. But they also need to be able to understand and articulate important teaching concepts. Um, so it, most of our black belts will teach um, or will teach during their brown belt grades. Um, some of them, for like, for example, I have one kid who um, has, doesn't get out of school until you know, half past five and can only make his own training. So uh, he has done kind of minimum teaching, but it doesn't mean that I'm not going to let him get his black belt. It, it just means that he will come to, in fact, uh, he graded a couple of weeks ago and is talking about coming to do some work during his gap year to learn more about teaching. So that's cool. So it's not compulsory, but um, understanding it is compulsory. Um, putting it into practice is not essential at this level. So it sounds like by the time they get to that point, it's not that you have to force them, but they've developed enough where they want to. Yeah. Well, if they haven't, they're not going to be in the system. They're not going to get black belt because that, you know, that's, that's part of how we work. So it's that kind of, there's that long transition from from extrinsic to intrinsic motivation. So when they're little, we have to give them a, a stripe or a badge or a sticker or something to do anything to you know to sit still or to um, to practice their foot shapes or whatever. But by the time they get to the high grades, they will have made that jump from not requiring that extrinsic motivation, but being intrinsically motivated to be successful on their own to be to to reach their potential. Because of course, the whole concept of karate is that it should be the best version of yourself that you can be. Um, that's what was intended, not you're going to be some, you know, Terminator. Uh, so, you know, that's for, for us, we're not going to grade them to black belt if they don't show those skills. Is competition a part of the requirement to become a black belt at all? Or if it's not, is that something that isn't high on the priority list? That's a really good question. Our school deviated from competitions about, I don't know, 10, 11 years ago. Because if you're going to be really successful in competition, you kind of just have to do that. Um, and we take kids to competition, and I huge, I do believe it's a, it's a really valuable experience for them. Um, I mean, we took them, we took a big group of kids to competition just a, a few weeks ago, um, and that was a really good experience um, because they challenged their skills under pressure. And for me, that's um, so obviously the way that they fight in competition or the way they perform a catering competition is. Um, it's different to the way that they would do it in the dojo um, because it's a different environment and because it has different pressures. Um, and it's just really good to, to test their skills in a, in a different way. Um, you know, we're not going to throw our kids out on the streets and have people attack them to see if they can keep their cool under pressure and defend themselves. Um, so what we have to do is then in our grading system and by taking them to some competitions, we have to give them the opportunity of seeing what happens when they do put themselves under pressure. So in terms of personal excellence, 
I would say we, it's not a focus that we have in terms of development of the individual, then yeah, it is something that we do. And the organization that I work with in India is very focused on sport committee and WKF competitions. So the girls that I have in India have, have competed and will continue to compete. That's an important thing for them. One of the things that I've noticed in the martial arts, and maybe there was no martial arts heyday, but the way it currently is, and, and maybe the way it has been, is martial arts, it's not like a team sport. It, it's become, it is, I don't know if it's become, it is very individualistic. Competition is one way, it becomes even more so. But even schools that don't compete can be very individual oriented. So a couple of things that you said that was really fascinating was the teaching element, because that forces you to not be as individualistic, that you have to be empathetic and give back, but also think of yourself as uh, a collective group. And the other thing you were talking about was the teaching of first aid. And I haven't ever heard that before of self-defense and martial arts teaching the healing aspect as well. But once you said it, it sounds so obvious. So how did those elements become part of your association's martial arts? Uh, that's largely down to our chief instructor um, and being dissatisfied with the system that he came out of before. Um, and that's often the way, isn't it, in, in martial arts, that you kind of want to make your system much better than the one you want to evolve. Um, and, you know, we talked about what did we want a black belt to look like? What should a black belt in our system be? Um and for sure, if a, a, a black belt martial artist should know how to deal with concussions and um, fractures and all of those things, because that's something that they're likely to come across. Um, we won't grade anybody to black belt who doesn't know how to swim, um, because that's an important life skill. Um, so it's the whole idea that um, we have a holistic approach. We also interview our black belts. We have to, so basically, in order to sit for black belt, they have to have passed um, a technical test to show that their work is of a sufficiently high standard. Then they do a written test, which covers all the elements that I talked about before. And then we interview them. It was kind of like a character interview where we get a panel of black belts together and we drill them. You know, what are you like at school? What do your friends say about you? What are your aspirations in life? Where do you see yourself going as a martial artist? What are the important ways that you've applied the lessons of martial arts to your life? Because we need all our black belts to be reflective. Um, if they're not reflective, then they're going to turn out to be assholes. And we don't want that. Not from our system. Sounds like you have a very, not even holistic, what in philosophy you would call an ontological approach where it's about mm. being. What kind of a being do you want to be rather than just utility? Here's yeah. some skills like a Swiss army knife, and we're going to train you in these skill sets. And that's about it. With that said, from what you see in the greater martial arts, how much of that is adopted? Like how much of martial arts now is the way you guys are doing it? Or do you feel like that's more of a minority and the way martial arts is now growing is more of this creating the best individual killing machine or fighter that you can be? I think because martial arts is so much bigger now than it was like 10 years ago, um, you're going to get all of those different elements and you can't you can't legislate for, you know, there's going to be some people in there that, that do want to be a Terminator or that think that their way is the only way. Uh, I think any martial artist that has a hundred percent belief that their system is the correct system, I kind of discount their view pretty much straight away. Um, because, you know, what we know to be true is that uh, learning from other martial arts and testing, 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 you've always got to test um, what you're doing. Um, and there's, I think, uh, a great movement in martial arts, certainly in the UK, where even traditional martial artists have that kind of reality check all the time. You, you know, I, I was listening to uh, one of my um, mentors uh, work uh, yesterday and said that using a, a head kick in self-defense is like teaching people to punch in the shin. You know, it's completely illogical. Uh, it's fine if you're using competition. It's fine in a consensual thing where you've agreed to fight with somebody and that kind of allows for a certain degree of distance. Um, but that's just an example really of how martial arts is trying to trying to be reflective. So, you know, whether it's Krav Maga or Jiu-Jitsu or Judo, it's about looking at what's working and what's working in different situations and what's working with, uh, you know, against resistance um, as opposed to somebody just standing there and letting you experiment on them. Um, 
And those are all really healthy things. And I think where that where you're really testing techniques, then you don't have the same problem of ego. Um, because you know the martial arts world is full of people with huge egos, but that tends to be the same people that aren't being reflective and testing their art with alongside of other arts. They probably had big egos to begin with. <laughs> maybe so, yeah, maybe so. Uh, it's you know you get them in all walks of life, don't you? I think maybe even more so in martial arts because you do get that kind of macho testosterone thing. That's one of the things where it's a bit weird being female in, in the world of martial arts. In some ways, it's a good thing because you don't have to feel that other martial artists need to square up to you because you're a girl, so they kind of discount you anyway. Um, but yeah, it's it's when you when you're working with um, very traditional martial artists, that idea of hierarchy can be really important to them. Hierarchy importance in a good way, or it's a double-edged sword. It could be good and bad. Uh, I'm not great with hierarchy. It has to be said. Um, I'm respectful of people's experience, um, and, um, and and their knowledge. Um, and you know, in that sense, I I, I have some you know very high-ranking martial artists that I respect hugely and and massively value. Um, but I wouldn't. You wouldn't find me being automatically um, kind of respectful to somebody because they hold a high rank. Because you know, you just don't know what that rank means. But that's not necessarily very traditional or appropriate. So, I guess you know, I, w I would have to bide my time. If you introduce me to uh, an eighth dan, I, I would, I'd maybe talk to him before I decided what I thought of him. <laughs> so the old, the old casual way where you have to actually talk to the person instead of just judging them by their exterior. I think that's only fair. There's a term in martial arts specifically called Bullshito, where there's, it used to be really bad where there was a rampant amount of instructors who claimed to be, like you said, eighth dan or grandmaster of a style that didn't exist. And they just made up out of thin air. And they have credentials that can't be questioned. Now with the internet, you could always look it up and say, well, that's not true. Like, I've never heard of this person before. Or you could YouTube their classes and their training and say, like, this doesn't work. I love it. In BJJ particularly, uh, nobody gets away with putting on the wrong belt and opening a club. And the UK underground has, a, a, you know, it takes them three minutes to get their pitchforks out and destroy somebody who tries to say that they have credentials that they actually haven't earned. Um, so yeah, you're right. The internet does a lot um, to kind of bring this back. Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is unique amongst a lot of other martial arts, but not in the typical way that people are going to think. I'm going to probably say something people don't think about, but it grew the same time the internet grew. Mm. So that means you can't think of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu without the internet. So the typical Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu person probably is much more aware of message boards and YouTube and the internet than a lot of other people. So I think that's the reason why. It's not just the fact that they care about it more. I think every martial arts cares about it. But the internet and Google and YouTube is, you know, a second arm to Jiu-Jitsu people. They're on YouTube all the time. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it's very interesting when you, when you go into a, a Jiu-Jitsu school, you can immediately tell who has been a traditional martial artist before and who's only trained in jiu-jitsu as well because uh, it, it, it's, it, does, it is kind of, it's more laid back as a martial art generally, um, but uh, the behavior of people inside the training room uh, is often governed by their background in martial arts. Uh, so that's, you know, you, you get a lot of keyboard warriors for sure in BJJ. Um, but the attitude of those that have come from a different martial art as well tends to be a little bit more, um, I don't know, calmer maybe, more mature. I think it's complicated because I've also seen people, and even me coming from different martial arts before, because I'm of an age where I couldn't have even started jiu-jitsu when I was a little kid, so I came from other martial arts. But one of the things, especially in the lower belts, is if they came from another martial art and they're a white belt in jiu-jitsu, they always assume they're the only one that came from another martial art. So they are always like, 
oh, if it was striking or if it was this or that, I would do it this way. I guess jujitsu does it that way. And I was always like, dude, 90% of us have trained other martial arts. You're, the, you're not the only one who has a black belt in Taekwondo or, mm. you know, have done something else. But there's always that kind of thought, I must be the only one. So I think that can be also kind of, I know what you're saying about jujitsu, but I think that can also be very arrogant. You know, and I think that comes from you have a high rank in another martial art and you got to start from white belt again. And that says a lot about your humility, but it's hard to stay that humble the whole time. Maybe you walk in humble, but five minutes into it, you want to start bragging about what you were able to do in other martial arts. You're right. There's a whole generation of older martial artists that have had to come to terms with taking off their belt and putting on a white belt. That's one of the reasons I particularly admire Tom Kalos. Um, because, you know, he was supreme in his martial art and he put on that white belt and he ate dirt because he was like, okay, I understand that that this martial art is better and that I need to learn it because uh, as a martial artist, I I can't really claim um, to be a decent martial artist unless I know this stuff. Um, But yeah, it's hard for a lot of guys to bury the ego and, uh, and to take off their black belt. But also he's always giving back and he kind of like you, what you're doing in India for a very long time, been a part of the humanitarian aspect of martial arts. And I think he's always been trumpeting that as well. Definitely. Yeah. He's, he's really into giving back to the community that you're, that you're part of and that, that being the responsibility of a martial artist. Uh, so yeah, I, I feel for him because I think, you know, he's spent so many, uh, years training and, uh, he's really s- struggling with his, um, with his hips and the injuries that he's had. Um, I just kind of feel that if anybody deserves, uh, to, to reach the top of the tree in jujitsu, it should be him, but, you know, but then he'd be the first person to say, it's not about the belt. It's always going to be about the attitude. So, yeah. Yeah. He has a great saying something about from the dojo into the world all your training, everything you do, the whole point is to carry it into the world. Yeah, definitely. That very powerful connection with community. And that's, you know, that, that obviously resonates with what I believe as well. And that if you're a martial artist, only when you're in the dojo, then you're not really a martial artist at all. So we got into it about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu a little bit, but we can't talk about that without talking about MMA. Because Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu really became famous because of the UFC it was the art that was trying to be the proto mixed martial arts. Even though it was ground fighting, it was already trying to find a system that worked against all other styles. So what do you think has been the impact of MMA to martial arts? Does it work? That would be my main thing. As like it, when you see people uh, using the, you know, if to be a good in MMA, you need to have, as you were saying, a variety of arts. Uh, one, one art on its own is just not going to cut it. Um, and so it's um, kind of cool to, to, to see and feel the drawing of um, the effective techniques from a range of different martial arts to produce somebody that you know, can really defend themselves against somebody who is highly trained. Um, so, and and to see what would happen, you know, we've always, always, as martial artists, you always want to go, you know, the hypothetical thing of uh, if you put Iron Man in in a place with, uh, I don't know, Dr. Strange, what would happen? And and it's the same kind of in in MMA. If you put this guy with this guy or this girl with this girl in this, and neither of them could escape who, you know, who would, who would be the one that's still standing at the end? Um, and I think it does a lot to satisfy our curiosity in that kind of way. Um, so I think it's it's made martial arts more reflective uh, in each art. It's maybe caused some people to to jump ship and to move to a martial art that is not their original art. Um, and then in some ways, it's caused other people to shut down and then they kind of like, like make more of a barrier and, and say to their students, no, you can't go and train in other clubs. No, you have to remember that our martial art is is the right way. Um, and you don't want to pollute that learning. That's the whole idea that training with other people will pollute your 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 learning, uh, which you know I don't think is true. Do you think it's also had some negative impacts? Maybe where even traditional schools feel like they have to be more sportive, or they have to turn away more from tradition or philosophy, and have to give them more of the. I think it did have that kind of identity crisis that there was a wobble. Um, but I feel like certainly in the UK anyway, people are settling back down again um, and realizing that your martial art doesn't have to be all things to all people. You know, recently with um, 
karate being trialed at the Olympics, which is really good. Um, there's a focus. We understand that Olympic karate is not the same as the karate that's being taught in lots of different dojos. Um, it, sport karate is, is slightly different and it, it requires a different emphasis to very traditional karate or karate taught for self-defense. Um, or, uh, you know, when you think about um, all the different types of martial arts that there are, it's okay for them to have their own character. Um, and I think that's kind of swung back that way now. So it sounds like you're saying there was a bit of an identity crisis for a while, but then everybody's being like, I'm me and you're you and that's okay. Yeah, I hope so. That's certainly what I feel to be the case from where I'm sitting. You're also working on a children's book, right? Yeah, a series of four children's books. And what are they about? Um, well, it's a commission from Oxford University Press, and uh, they came to me with an idea about uh, a kind of the original idea was samurai monkeys, but then they decided to take it away from the focus of Japan and call it warrior monkeys. Uh, and the, it's a it's a sort of stories for seven to nine year olds, and uh, it's based in a fantasy uh, islands in the middle of nowhere where young warrior monkeys train and uh, have to defeat their enemies and you know get along with each other. So it doesn't turn into Lord of the Flies. <laughs> it really doesn't turn into Lord of the Flies. No, it's definitely uh, anti Lord of the Flies. So then, when that book comes out, or when your books start coming out, hopefully you'll be able to come back to the show. Oh, that would be really cool. Thank you. Yeah, I'd like to do that. What are some of the ways that people can get in contact with you or some of the organizations that you're working with? And then we'll add it to the show notes, of course. Well, that's very cool. Um, our website is uh, schoolofmartialarts.com. Uh, and my I can be reached on Mary at schoolofmartialarts.com. Um, I work with uh, fairfight.nl. That's our um, our charity. Um, and they work, they partner with uh, Act and Help, um, who are a French organization based in Paris. Um, and yeah, I'd be very happy to talk to anybody about the work that we do because I, I believe it's fantastic. And just so people can know, what part of the UK do you teach out of if they coincidentally happen to be in the area and wanted to learn from you? I'm in Oxford. Oh, great. Thank you, Mary. Not at all. Thanks for having me on the show. Take care. Cheers. Bye-bye.